Our passage this morning is from Romans chapter 13, and I'll just read that to you, and then Johnny will come and deliver God's word to us. Romans chapter 13, reading from the ESV version, and we'll read the whole chapter. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed. Honour to whom honour is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Well, good morning again. Thank you very much to Rod for leading the service and to our musicians and to others who've taken part so far. My name is Johnny. I'm the pastor and part of the, the leadership team here at Hebron, and it is great to have you with us this morning. We're going to be thinking, as as Rod's just mentioned, about uh, the next chapter in the book of uh, Romans this morning. As Rod mentioned as well, there's an inter-church service next Sunday morning, um, which will be hosted here. It'll be a bit different uh, than a normal Sunday morning service, but you'd be most, most welcome. Please do come along uh, next Sunday morning for that. Um, And as a bit of a steer as to where we're going to be going, um, after that, our plan here is to have another four Sunday mornings in the book of Romans uh, before we begin a short series in the book of Haggai at the start of what will be the academic term. That's roughly where we're heading over the next few weeks. Now, thankfully, Rod has already read for us, but before we spend some time thinking about that part of the Bible together, let me pray for us and for our time. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we praise you as one who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, to whom its people are like grasshoppers, as one who brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. And yet also as one who is intimately concerned for the lives of your people. 
We pray, our God and Father, that you would please help each one of us this morning to see and know you as you are more clearly, to love you more dearly, and so to follow you more nearly. We ask it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Uh, well, uh, next slide, please, Johan. Wonderful, there we go. Um, how is your relationship with state authority? wonder how you'd answer that question. How is your relationship with those who have leadership responsibilities over you and over the rest of the country? Some of us, I guess, will naturally have quite a kind of settled and a positive relationship with authority by default. Perhaps we're quite content to abide by rules generally, to honour those with responsibility for leadership over us. But others among us, I think it's fair to say, definitely won't. And in fact, those who don't, I suspect, are probably growing in number over time. Because we do live in a culture, don't we, which has a bit of an aversion to authority. Or at the very least, an aversion to people in authority. Don't get me wrong, there have always been people who don't like being told what to do. But I suspect the level of, of distrust and of disrespect for people in positions of authority, well, in, in media and on social media, and just in the way that we speak about them when we speak to one another, well, it seems to be getting sharper and sharper over time. And let's be honest, recent history has done little to disabuse us of that, has it? The sense of suspicion that many of us might have inherently felt towards political leaders, well, some of those suspicions have been shown publicly to have been justified in recent months and years, both on a national level and on an international level. Now, whilst that's perhaps an issue that, that many of us have generally in our culture, I do wonder whether it's something that, for those of us who are Christians, it might well be even more acute. And the reason I say that is that Christians claim to follow a higher authority, don't we? We submit to King Jesus. That's where our true allegiance lies. And Jesus said, didn't he, that, that his kingdom is not of this world. And so our calling as Christians is to submit to him and to his authority. And so, well, we might be tempted to think we don't really need to worry all that much about the state and state authority. How is your relationship with state authority comes the question, both generally in our culture and particularly for Christians, the answer for many of us will be, I suspect, not great. And now we are continuing our series in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We've reached chapter 13. And next slide, please, Johan, thank you. And the headline over Romans 12 and 13 we saw last week came in chapter 12, verse 1. Paul wrote this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And throughout chapter 12, Paul painted a picture of what that kind of worship looks like. Our worship of God, which we might want to treat as a purely vertical thing, well, it cashes out horizontally by how we relate to one another. We saw that last week. It looks like using gifts as part of a body of Christians. It looks like loving one another as part of a living family. 
And it even looks like doing good to people who persecute us rather than doing them harm. And it is just worth remembering all of that because when we reach chapter 13, Paul hasn't changed the subject. He's still painting a picture of a life that's given over to God in love and in service of him. And all that means is that the shock we might have felt last week that we worship God by doing good to those who persecute us, well, it only gets more shocking in chapter 13. Because in chapter 13 of Romans, one way in which Christians worship God rightly, submit to his authority, is by submitting ourselves to state authorities. Let me put that in a more pointed way. Paul says, this isn't me speaking, Paul says we submit to the authority of the eternal God, the one to whom I just prayed, enthroned above the circle of the earth, we submit to him by submitting to those who sit in Westminster or Holyrood. How does that make you feel? I suspect it may well stick in our cross just a bit. Possibly because at a principled level you can see just loads of problems with that kind of idea. Because the people in Westminster and in Holyrood, well, they're clearly not perfect, are they? Nor are the decisions they make or the ways in which they lead. Are we still to submit to them? Or perhaps more to the point, what about when the state, when the government who rules over us, tells us to do something that the Bible tells us not to do? What do we do then as Christians? Well, the teaching of the rest of the Bible means that there are some caveats to this big principle, and we'll think about some of those in a few minutes. But what I would ask of you this morning is that if you're a Christian, don't let those caveats steal the burden of what Paul actually is saying. Let's think about exactly what it is he's saying under our first heading this morning. Next slide, please, Johan. Thank you. Christians owe their submission to state authorities because those authorities are instituted by God. Now, Winston Churchill's once recorded as saying that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. Democracy is a good way, humanly speaking, of leaders being kept accountable to the people they're leading. And obviously it plays a huge role in how we do things in the UK and in the West more generally. But it is interesting that in all that Paul says in in Romans 13, he doesn't actually name-check democracy. He doesn't say, let every person be subject to the authorities because you chose them. Much less does he say, let every person be subject to the authorities because you chose them, so you better live with it. Read with me verse 1 again. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. God is the one who is supremely in control over all things. Ultimately, he is the one who institutes authorities, who puts them in place, not the electorate. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we don't vote as Christians or we don't engage with the political process. God's control over the world is never a reason, biblically speaking, for human beings not to act. And it is a really good thing for us to make use of the privileges that we do have as Christians in the UK to hold governments to account 
But Romans 13 does mean that whatever we might think of them, God is the one who ultimately puts authorities in place. And actually, Paul goes further than that. Verses 3 and 4. Just read those with me. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Next slide, please, Johan. Christians owe their submission to state authorities because those authorities are agents of God. Not just because they are instituted by him, but because in a certain sense they act on his behalf. How do they do that? Well, by means of a justice system, for example. Courts and legal systems. Police and prison systems are means by which God maintains order. And that is a surprise when we read it in black and white. Because we are so aware, aren't we, of the limitations and imperfections of state authorities, of, of, of police systems and prison systems and courts and legal systems. I was part of the court system for a while. I was a solicitor before I came to do this job. I'm fully aware of its limitations. But what Paul says is that one way in which God exercises his authority is through state authority. Now, it is worth saying that that isn't always straightforward. And the Bible gives plenty of examples of that. For example, it was a king who put Daniel into a lion's den for remaining faithful to God. That was state authority. It was a figure of Roman authority who was responsible, humanly speaking, for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And in fact, in in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 13... State governments are portrayed as being a vehicle of evil. And so Romans 13 isn't the only word that the Bible has to say on the issue of state authority. And that means there are exceptions when we think of how Romans 13 applies. For example, in Afghanistan today, state authorities have made it illegal to be a Christian. No faith allowed in that country other than Islam. That is a state telling you to disobey God, not to be a Christian at all. And in that kind of situation, when when being obedient to state authorities means being disobedient to God, well, the Christian's obligation is to stay obedient to God. Let me say that again. When being obedient to state authorities means being disobedient to God, then the Christian's responsibility, our call, is to remain faithful to God. Now, we are a long way from that in Scotland, at least as things stand. I suspect, though, that those kind of exceptions, well, they may start to creep more and more into public life over the coming years. And it will take a great deal of thought and prayer and discussion often to work out whether an issue is a Revelation 13 issue or a Romans 13 issue. But whilst all of that is true... It is just worth remembering, Paul was writing to the church in Rome. And if you didn't know, the Roman Empire was ruled by emperors who weren't exactly paragons of virtue. Nor were they best friends towards Christians. And so whilst there are exceptions, and we do need to be very aware of those, 
But we also need to appreciate that those are exceptions. The general principle from Romans 13 is that part of what it looks like to worship God as a Christian, to offer our lives to him as a living sacrifice, is to be a good citizen. Or getting down to brass tacks for a moment, remaining faithful to Jesus, offering your life to him as a living sacrifice. Well, it'll look like abiding by the speed limit. It'll look like not downloading or streaming TV or film content illegally. It'll look like counting our income accurately when we're submitting a tax return. That might sound a bit too nitty-gritty, but that's exactly the kind of example Paul gives, verse 6. Because of this, he says, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. These might feel insignificant compared to matters of eternity, says Paul, but they aren't. They're part of your worship to the living God. And Paul isn't just concerned that we submit our actions to the authorities, but that we submit our attitudes. Verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honour to whom honour is owed. I remember a Christian friend of mine telling me that he was in the car with his little boy and they were listening to the radio and a senior political figure, I I won't tell you who because it will probably colour your view of the story, a senior senior political figure was being interviewed on the radio and uh, his little boy asked him, Daddy, who's that speaking? And my friend said that his immediate impulse, without even really thinking about it, his immediate impulse was to respond, I'll tell you who it is, son. That's the idiot who's responsible for X and Y and Z. But he'd been studying what the Bible had been teaching on authority not long prior to that. And so before those words came rushing out of his mouth, he realized that he'd be betraying a real dishonor. A disrespect for someone whom God had entrusted with authority to lead over him. And so instead of saying what he was going to say, he said, actually, that is so-and-so. And he's in charge of making lots of important and very difficult decisions about the country we live in. And that is a shift, isn't it? It's not that my friend's commending every decision that political leader has ever made, not at all. But at the very least, he was acknowledging that there is no authority except from God. Christians owe our submission to authority because authorities are instituted by and agents of God. That's our first big idea this morning. But you might have noticed that as as Rod read the passage for us a few minutes ago, that in the second half of Romans 13, things take a bit of a turn. In verses 1 to 7, Paul's concerned with how Christians relate to state authorities. And then he seems to pick up a completely different idea. Verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. What does love have to do with submitting to authorities? Well, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the big headline that hangs over all that follows in Romans chapter 12 and 13 is verse 1 of chapter 12. Submission to state authorities, as well as love for one another, are part of our worship to God. And so whilst verses 1 to 7, we're under an obligation as Christians to submit to the law of the land, 
Well, in verses 8 to 14, we're under an obligation to fulfill the law of the Lord. Let's think about that under our third heading this morning. Next slide, please, Joanne. Christians owe their love to one another because we live in the daytime now. Now, I wonder whether you would describe yourself as being a, a bit of a morning person, an early bird. You love to get up in the morning and crack on with the day. Perhaps you're more of a nighttime person, a bit of a night owl. You only really kind of come alive late in the evening. I recently heard someone saying that they were neither an early bird nor a night owl, but rather some kind of permanently exhausted pigeon. And uh, I guess some of us kind of fall somewhere into that kind of category too. But no matter where you are on that spectrum of mornings and evenings, human beings aren't nocturnal, are we? There's something about us, something about our, our body clocks in general, that mean that we're meant to be awake during the day and active and then to sleep at night. And in fact, there was uh, an article in some of the papers over lockdown, you might have seen uh, a number of articles actually, about people who were marathon runners, and they were, they were living in cities and trying to remain uh, socially distanced in a very busy place uh, whilst carrying on training for marathons. And so to avoid the crowds, they were getting up at 2 a.m. to go running each day. And the reason that that was worthy of an article is that that isn't usual behavior. Now, some of us work night shifts. Some of us do struggle with sleep. I know that. But generally, our behavior is very often synced to the time of day or night that it is. And the reason I mention that is that in the second half of Romans 13, Paul reminds the church in Rome of just that idea. He reminds them of the time of day And he tells them that that ought to shape how they behave. I wonder if you noticed that. Read with me, verse 11. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Or verse 12. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Or verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime. It's no longer nighttime if you're a Christian, says Paul. It's now daytime. And that means we're to behave as though it's daytime. Now, what he doesn't mean by that, I think, is that you shouldn't be going out running marathons at two in the morning. There might be plenty of reasons you don't want to go running at two in the morning. Romans 13 isn't one of them. No, Paul's using night and day as a picture of people standing with God. People who've trusted in Jesus, who've been rescued by him, welcomed into his family, are people of light, of the daytime. And people who've rejected Jesus, who've gone their own way, are walking in darkness in the night. And what Paul is saying is that if you're someone who's been rescued by Jesus, well, don't act as though you're spiritually nocturnal. The kind of behavior that characterized living in the night, that characterized walking in darkness, well, that doesn't really fit with you anymore. Because it's daytime for you now. It's time to wake up and to live like that. Now, what will that look like? Well, 
We've seen this morning already, one aspect of what it looks like to walk in the light is to honor state authorities, even when other people around you aren't doing that. But another aspect of what it looks like, Paul says, is to love one another. We saw that last week. We spent a lot of time thinking about that last week. Paul returns to it here again. He trails it in verses 8 to 10. And then I think he unpacks what it looks like to love one another in verse 13. Just read that with me. Verse 13, he says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. That might sound like a bit of a scattergun list of behavior. Adultery and covetousness, quarreling and jealousy. But the reason I think Paul reaches for those is that those are behaviors which dishonor God, but they also harm your neighbor. You see that? Other people are caught up in your sin. Other people are harmed by that kind of conduct. And Paul's saying living in the daytime, living in the light, well, it means turning your back on that now. Honor God by loving one another. Now, as I say, we thought about that a fair bit last Sunday, and we're going to see more specific examples of what that kind of love looks like in chapter 14, not next week, but the Sunday afterwards. But there is a danger, I think, that we might miss exactly how it is we're meant to do all of that, to live in the light. What do I mean by that? Next slide, please, Johan. Well, um, gratitude can be a powerful motivator, can't it? Think, for example, of the story at Les Miserables, or if you prefer it in English, The Miserables, which never sounds quite as interesting a story. If you don't know the story, it is better than my butchering of the French language might make it sound. One of the main characters in Les Miserables is a French thief, a convicted thief called Jean Valjean. And after his release from prison, Valjean finds himself rejected by everyone. But eventually, he's shown kindness. A bishop takes him in, gives him a place to stay, feeds him. But Valjean repays that kindness by trying to steal from the bishop. And yet even then, instead of making sure that Valjean goes back to prison for stealing from him, well, the bishop covers for Valjean. He tells the police that he'd given Valjean the silver as a gift. He even adds more silver to the pile. And in the story, that one act of kindness, of mercy, well, it seems to motivate Valjean to change his life around. Years later, we meet him, no longer bitter, no longer twisted by the world's rejection of him, but as a completely transformed man. And there is one sense in which that's the kind of thing that Paul's had in mind in Romans 12 and 13. Christians are people who've been shown kindness, extraordinary mercy by the God of the universe. And in light of that kindness, in view of God's mercy, chapter 12, verse 1, Christians are called to change. But it is worth being clear that on its own, gratitude is not quite enough when it comes to living the Christian life. Gratitude alone won't bring about consistent transformation in each one of us. And that's why Paul doesn't just tell us to look back to God's kindness to us in the past. 
to motivate us to change, important as that really is, well, it isn't the only weapon in the Christian's armory, if you like. Instead, Paul tells us to take hold of who we actually are now. Just look with me at verse 13 again. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but, verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What's Paul saying there? Well, he's picking up on a theme that we've seen elsewhere through the letter. That if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you have been united to him. You died with Jesus in his death on the cross. Your old self, the self who used to walk in darkness, well, he or she has been done away with. And just as Jesus rose from the dead, so you have been raised with him, joined to him in newness of life. And that's all very interesting. You might be thinking, or perhaps not. But what does it have to do with anything? Well, it means that if you're a Christian, there has been a fundamental change in who you are. So when we try and live as God would have us live, in all life worship of him, as we've seen in Romans 12 and 13, but we find ourselves stumbling and seeming not to make the progress we would like, Well, the way to address that isn't just to think to ourselves, be more grateful. No, it's to ask ourselves this question, who am I now? Whose am I now? Who has ultimate power in my life now? Is it my old self? The self who used to walk in darkness and in night? Or is it Jesus the one to whom I am united now. Listen, being able to answer that question confidently really matters if you're a Christian. Don't answer it by how you might feel. Answer it by what you know, by what Romans tells you. As a Christian, you are united to the Lord Jesus. By his Holy Spirit, God himself is growing you to be more like him over time, to love and serve your brothers and sisters to submit to state authority, even when other people around you are doing anything but that. So for each of us, those of us who've trusted in Jesus, as we think on how we're to apply Romans 12 and 13 to ourselves, to our own lives going forwards, the answer isn't just to white-knuckle it on our own. It's to ask God for his help to grow as an all-life worshipper of Jesus, to be who we really are now, to put on the Lord Jesus day by day by day. Now, perhaps you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian yet. And if that is you, then it is just worth saying that none of what I've spoken about this morning, this, this appeal for Christians to love each other, The appeal for for, for Christians to submit to state authorities. None of it is done in order to make Christians right with God. That might be how you think this this whole thing works, the Christian faith. That, That Christians live in a certain way and that if we're good enough at doing that, that God will accept us. But that isn't right at all. Nothing we can do will make us right with God. 
That's one of the big messages we've seen again and again and again through the book of Romans. All of us have rejected him and have treasured and worshipped other things instead of him. And one day there will be a reckoning for that rejection. And yet the wonderful, and it is wonderful, good news of Jesus Christ is that he has borne that reckoning. He's taken that condemnation on himself, in his own body, on the cross, for anyone who would trust in and would treasure him. And so the promise, the reassurance of Romans 13, is that that can be yours. That you can be forgiven and welcomed into his family as a child of God and united to Jesus. If you will, acknowledge your rejection of him. Ask for his forgiveness. And trust in him and his death in your place. You can do that now, even in the quiet of your own heart. It's been my prayer this week that someone here might just do that today. Let me encourage you to do that if you've never done it before. Let me pray for us together. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we praise you as one who is all wise, as one who doesn't make mistakes, and as one who is absolutely worthy of our trust and obedience. And yet we do acknowledge, Lord, that some of what we've thought about together this morning might well be hard for us to get our heads and our hearts around. That you would use imperfect state authorities to accomplish your purposes in the world. And yet we ask, Lord, that you would please grow within us an obedience to you. A longing to worship you with all of our lives. And that that would help us, enable us to fulfill the law of the Lord, to love one another as Christians. To do good to those who persecute us, not harm. And even to obey the law of the land. Lord, in all these things we acknowledge our weakness and our stumbling. And we pray that you would please help us each day by day to put on the Lord Jesus. To seek your help to grow in our likeness to him. We ask all of this in your precious name. Amen.